This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. Today on Government Matters, after years of delays, NASA successfully launched its Artemis One mission on November 16th. It's just part of a series of missions to build a human presence on the moon. NASA's deputy administrator shares some of the mission's findings and future space exploration plans. And from TVs to alarm systems, smart devices are everywhere. And the security and privacy risks that come with them are only increasing. We'll discuss how government and industry can work together to protect consumers. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Right now, the Orion spacecraft is on a 26-day journey. It will travel more than a million miles and orbit the moon before splashing back down on Earth on December 11th. Pam Mel Melroy is the deputy administrator at NASA. Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. So in general, what's the significance of this Artemis mission? What does it really mean to you? Well, as we approach the 50th anniversary of the last Apollo mission, Apollo 17, it's been more than 50 years since we've been to the moon or it's approaching that. So uh, this mission is actually uh, about something very different than Apollo. We are creating a blueprint for humans to do science and exploration throughout the solar system. And we're going to practice it on the moon and then we're gonna go execute it on Mars and in other destinations. So this time we're going to stay and to do science. And Artemis One is just the beginning. What's the data that you're collecting from this Artemis mission, this current one that's going on? And, and what have you learned so far? This is a critically important mission. It's the first one, so we're really testing out the vehicle. We don't have crew on board uh, for safety reasons, so we're gonna push it a little bit harder than we would normally do if there was a crew on board so that we can really understand the capabilities of the vehicle. Uh, first of all, we learned a lot from the rocket, the SLS rocket, uh, which perfectly inserted Orion uh, on its way to the moon. So uh, that was a great experience, just getting it out to the pad a few times, figuring things out, uh, getting to know the quirks of the rocket. So we've learned a lot about both procedures and the technology. Uh, for Orion so far, uh, we're learning tons about the vehicle. We're exercising many of the systems, and of course, we're gonna learn a lot from the atmosphere around the moon. Now, we don't usually think of atmosphere around the moon, but in fact, it is an environment and there's solar wind, there's radiation. So if we're gonna operate there on a routine basis, we really need to understand it. Orion will reach a maximum distance from Earth of about 270,000 miles. That's a long way. What's the significance of um, that distance and what are you hoping to learn? Well, one of the things that we're doing on this mission is going uh, very far beyond the moon. Again, to understand the environment around the moon 
Uh, we're going into a, uh, a distant retrograde orbit around and, and basically understanding the environment. This will help us in the future with future orbital missions, uh, with understanding space weather better. Uh, we really need to also test the vehicle in these extreme environments. Tell me about the next phases of the Artemis project and, and the timeline for it. Right, so uh, we'll be landing, as you pointed out, on December 11th, so that will be a very critical test for the mission. We need to verify that at the extremely high Mach number and Gs of a moon re-entry, uh, that we can safely bring Orion back. And so that's, that, that will be our last uh, test point, and it will be a big one. After that, we're gonna spend some time analyzing the data. We currently have hardware in work all the way through Artemis V, our fifth mission. Uh, our next flight is scheduled to be in two years, uh, and then that, that will be the first crewed mission, and we will be announcing the crew for that next year. You, you alluded to this earlier about having a human presence on the moon. Tell me a little bit more about that. How would that work? What would they be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, uh, the most important thing they would be doing is science because that's what we go to space for. We go to space for science, we also go for technical capability for our country, and we also go for inspiration. So everything we do, we need to be focused on maximizing those three areas. So the astronauts will be discovering new science, and as we've seen with the James Webb Space Telescope and Hubble and Mars Perseverance, how incredibly inspiring and the incredible things that we learn about our own Earth and about the solar system. Tell me more about that, because you know, space exploration is not cheap. Is this worth it to the American taxpayer, given all the other funding priorities that, that are really very valid? Well, that's why we focus on those three areas. They're very, very important. Remember, every penny spent on the space program is spent right here on Earth. And so creating that technical capability uh, and the science and technology capability spills out into other areas and of course inspires the next generation in STEM. This is an investment in the future and that's got to be made. So that the, the harder things are, uh, the more valuable they are to the country. Speaking of the next generation, you know, throughout the federal government, there's a need for hiring for, for STEM um, especially for younger people and getting them interested in, in public service. Have you seen an uptick in interest um, and excitement among young people at NASA um, wanting to come into NASA because of the Artemis pro project? Well, we're very fortunate at NASA that we uh, have, have not ever had a problem recruiting. I think it's you know the best brand in the world and the work that we do is very exciting. What I think the impact is going to be is more significant broadly across public service and also across STEM disciplines. Personally, I was hugely inspired by the Apollo program. A whole generation of scientists, engineers, aviators, and explorers were inspired. And that's what we're gonna kick off with the Artemis program, the Artemis generation. Any international cooperation uh, in the Artemis program, or is this purely an American endeavor? I can't begin to describe all the ways that Artemis is different from Apollo, but this is certainly a very significant one. We think that going out into the solar system, we really need to be going with our international partners. We are setting precedents with everything that we do. 
So we really need to have uh, the right values in place because how we go is as important as what we do when we get there. And so those international partnerships are critical. And right now the European Space Agency uh, has contributed the service module to the Orion. Uh, we also have payloads from Israel, Germany, uh, Italy and Japan on board this very first flight. And uh, we will see um, Canadians, Japanese and other partners fly with us in the future. All right, Pam, stand by and we'll continue our conversation. On the other side of the break, we'll continue the conversation with NASA's Deputy Administrator, Pam Melroy. Stay with us. We're back with Pam Melroy. She's Deputy Administrator at NASA. Pam, uh, Russia had announced that it is um, intention to leave the International Space Station. It hasn't yet. What's the current situation between NASA and Russia's space agency? So uh, Russia has uh, also indicated that they prefer to have uh, their own space station in place before pulling out of ISS, uh, which is clearly still several years away since they have not started constructing it. So uh, right now we're in a very stable configuration. We have a very professional relationship with Russia. They've also indicated that they intend to completely fulfill all of the requirements that they have signed up for. Are you concerned at all about China's space uh, aspirations? They have completed an, a, a space station. Yeah, it's wonderful to see. Uh, we, you know, obviously think that space exploration is incredibly important. Uh, really, the only concern that we have is the lack of transparency in the Chinese space program. There's. Uh, very little communications about the things that they are doing um, and and that leads to some concerns and questions about what you know what their aspirations really are all about which means it's it just really important for us to be as transparent as we can and to partner with other international partners who have the same values we do the uh, one of the a's in nasa is for aeronautics so i want to ask you about the x-59 airplane this is very exciting. NASA is back in a big way in X-planes, which as a test pilot, I think is extremely exciting. It's very hard to make huge leaps in aeronautics unless you can actually demonstrate something at scale and you have to have an X-plane in order to do that. And the X-59 is going to make advances in supersonic aviation. Now, I think anybody who's made a trip from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States would be delighted to go in half the time, and uh, that's what we're hoping to enable. Uh, right now, it's not possible because of the sound of a supersonic boom. Uh, it rattles windows, it breaks windows, it's, it's, so it's not permitted. It's literally uh, it's not allowed by the FAA. So we would like to demonstrate a very strange shaped aircraft, fly it all over the country, knock on people's doors and say, do you hear anything? <laughs> We're hoping it sounds like a door slamming. So, so when, when are we gonna be able to fly in this airplane? Uh, it's gonna be exciting. This is an X plane, so it's meant to demonstrate that the technology is possible, so then it can be scaled for commercial aviation. So we, the first flight will be next year. COP27 just wrapped up. Mm -hmm. uh, what is NASA doing for sustainable aviation technologies? We're doing a lot for sustainable aviation. First of all, it's important to reduce emissions by improving 
the aerodynamics of an aircraft. So uh, an, uh, right now we've got an X-plane called X-57, which is solving some of the problems for all electric aircraft, but we're also taking the next step. Our next X-plane after the X-57 and the X-59 will be a sustainable flight demonstrator that will be able to reduce emissions just through the shaping of the aircraft and lightweighting it by about 25%. What's the latest, Pam, on the James Webb Telescope? It's, it's, still going, it's still going strong. I think we've only hit the tip of the iceberg on the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, obviously, the pictures that we see are very inspirational and they're exciting and awe-inspiring, but actually what, what it's all about is the science. <clears throat> really being able to look back into the history of the universe, we're already seeing things that we had no idea. Just how did galaxies form? What were the first stars like out in the middle of the void? Really, it, it's just astounding when you think about it. I think the physics insights that we're gonna get are amazing, but also the capability to look for life on other planets. I mean, really, if you talk about science, finding life in the universe, it's gonna be transformational. You're saying the James Webb Telescope can, can show us that? It can. If it's it out can, there? It can look at other planets, at exoplanets, planets around other stars, and see the signatures of life. The Perseverance Mars rover has been on the surface of Mars for coming up on two years. What's the plan? Is it just going to stay up there until it conks out on its own? Well, we've had pretty good luck with our rovers uh, living a lot longer, but yes, we expect it to, to stay up there in place. But in fact, it's part of a broader architecture. You may remember that it's collecting samples right now and in fact, caching them and loading them up. And right now we're working with our European partners on a very daring Mars sample return in about a decade. A very complex program involving sending a vehicle to Mars, dropping a rover with a launch rocket, two helicopters like Ingenuity, pick up uh, the, the cache of samples, and then for the first time launch a payload from the surface of another planet and catch it in space around Mars and then bring it back to the Earth. Okay, because nothing's ever come back from <laughs> Mars. No, we've never had a sample come back from Mars. It's when you look at the riches of what we learned from the moon samples, and we know we'll learn more, Mars, it's gonna be incredible. It is, and thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing that with us, Pam. Thank you, it's very exciting. Up next, your refrigerator might be spying on you. Privacy and security concerns around smart devices are growing. What the government can do to counter those risks. Smart devices and the Internet of Things, or IoT, pose security and privacy risks that consumers are not always aware of. A cyber label, along with new legislation, could offer protection. Brandon Pugh is a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Brandon, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Mimi. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here for this timely topic. Spell out for us the security and privacy risks of smart devices. Sure. So let me first say, like, IoT devices or Internet of Things devices, they have many benefits and they offer many conveniences, but there are so many risks with them as well. 
And this is particularly important because by the end of the year, there's estimated to be 14.4 billion of them. But we've also seen some security risks. I mean, I think one of the earliest examples was a mother finding out that a, uh, a nefarious actor was spying on her baby through the webcam. Uh, another case, we saw individuals being able to access front doors with smart locks. Um, so while there's many benefits on a daily basis, there's as many security risks with them. And I think that's really the important thing for consumers to know uh, so is just, the, sorry. Is this just for household devices or is there a concern for breaching critical infrastructure as well? So there's, there's two things. So what the White House is currently focusing on, that's limited to consumer devices, but you're right. IoT devices are present in critical infrastructure. Uh, we see them used in water processing plants, in nuclear power plants. Uh, but the current focus uh, of the White House is strictly limited consumer-facing devices. So there was an act that was just introduced in the Senate. It's called the Informing Consumers About Smart Devices Act. What would it do? Yes, so that's a piece of legislation by Senators Cantwell and Cruz. So thrilled to see the bipartisan legislation. But essentially, that would require manufacturers to tell consumers if the device has a, a microphone or is capable of uh, taking video. That way, at least consumers would know when they're buying a product that that device is capturing their audio or their video. Because too often times, consumers don't know that and are unknowingly buying these devices. Okay, so government and industry leaders are coming together. They're discussing the development of a cyber label to identify whether products meet certain security standards. How would that work? I mean, would companies self-certify? That's, that's a great point. So this is being called the Energy Star label for, for cyber, uh, which we know in the EPA's context, which is on, you know, when we buy a washer and dryer. This would be the equivalent for IoT devices. Um, so essentially, if, if the exact details of it are, are still up in the air, but the White House is coordinating this initiative. The thought would be is you would see some sort of QR code or some sort of check mark on a product as a consumer. That way, you know when you're buying it, it's met some level of baseline security standards. Um, so the advantage of having some sort of QR code is you can see in real times it's still compliant because there's a difference between it was compliant 10 years ago when it was boxed versus what's happened now because security changes by the second. And who would set those standards, Brandon? So that's still in the, in the works. Uh, the White House is actively working with uh, industry groups, associations, and the Archery Institute myself, uh, I was fortunate to be present. So the thought is now that um, NIST, uh, which is a government agency, they would help establish a baseline and then potentially industry associations would help carry them out. But to your earlier point, it's still up in the air in, in terms of would a company self attest that they are in compliance or should there be a role for a third party to see if they're actually in compliance? And then should one standard apply to all devices or should there be higher standards for devices with greater risk? Yes, so right now the White House is, is starting small. Their thought is let's start on two of the most commonly purchased uh, consumer devices. Uh, that being ring doorbells, not the single out ring, but even in a broader picture, any type of electronic doorbell. Um, so that's one of the areas they're starting, but, but you're right. I, I think there needs to be a, a different level of, of framework for the different products. So, because not every product is the same level of security concerns. There are large variations. And that are, those are the types of questions that are being worked through right now uh, with the White House and in industry groups. So what else do you think needs to happen, uh, Brandon, to not only make those labels effective, but really protect consumers? So the first is, is really consumer education. 
Because if we just put a label in a box and consumers don't understand what that means, then its effectiveness is really limited. And I, the way I see these labels, there are two main benefits. One is it's telling the consumer first off that the product they're buying is safe and secure to a degree. And then secondly, it's helping establish a baseline because it's really like the wild west in this world now. One company may follow fantastic security standards, but another third party, maybe a small co uh, company in another country, potentially an adversary, they may not follow security at all. So this is really helping establish that. And letting consumers know the importance is the first step. So there's also the issue of devices made overseas by foreign companies. So how would American standards apply to those devices? Yes, so there's uh, efforts around the world right now to have labeling initiatives. We saw Singapore actually beat us to it. So they have a labeling program uh, established and there's several other countries around the world. And this is a concern of mine. We don't wanna see the United States create a label program here and then have five, six, or potentially dozens around the world. I think any effort that the White House does here needs to be consistent and there needs to be an effort to harmonize them both for the benefit of consumers and industry. So we're not trying to understand that's a Chinese label or that's a Singapore label, but this is a US label. What are the differences? So having, I think one approach is just so important. All right, well, Brandon, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Mimi, thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities 
to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.